Hi, this is Steve with Thresher Media Group. Welcome to When You're Ready to Listen. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the truth about God, things you may not have understood, may not have been taught, or quite frankly, had a very hard time believing. And since our entire relationship with God rests on believing, it is important we learn how to separate the truth from the many lies and fictions that abound within the religion of Christianity. So when you're ready to listen, tune in and discover a pathway to freedom, encouragement, life, and hope. Before we get started, I want to let you know that in conjunction with this study, I have published a book entitled Liberating the Book of Revelation, Returning to the Source of the Message. This book gives a great introduction to the code and conveys the entire book of Revelation utilizing the actual verb tenses, voices, moods, case, and so on. Liberating the book of Revelation is intended to help us all know what the Spirit said and how he said it. This book is focused not so much on interpreting the book of Revelation, that's what this podcast is for, but it is about accurately representing the book of Revelation in the manner in which the Spirit originally spoke it to John. In addition, I received the help of an amazing artist, Howard David Johnson, who allowed me to use his amazing illustrations on the book of Revelation. And I encourage you to go to amazon.com and you can find the book either under the title, Liberating the Book of Revelation, Returning to the Source of the Message, or by my name as the author, Stephen Villanueva, V-I-L-L-A-N-U-E-V as in Victor A. It's available in hardback, paperback, and ebook format. And I'm currently working on the Audible version, and that should be done by the end of October. So more to come. Episode 113, Revelation 13, verses 14 through 15, part two. In our last podcast, we addressed the scary reality that the second beast, the false prophet, has been responsible for an image or an icon of the beast being created and standing where it ought not to be, in and amongst the holy ones of God. We learned that the second beast was granted the ability to give this image breath, such that it may speak to those who may hear it. Not everyone hears the image, but there are many who do. And not many who hear the image discern that its words are the words of the second beast, whose words are that of a dragon. His words start fires of destruction and division. These words stem from distortions of the word of God, perversions of grace, as that image touts such glories as love, tolerance, acceptance of all, equality, fairness, and justice, while at the same time demanding judgment, condemnation, and punishment of those who do not follow the ways of the beast. Fearing no human retribution, Its words burn and ignite a great fire, speaking blasphemies against God and against the called, chosen, and faithful of God, as it speaks words that destroy, words that represent the true base nature of the beast, destruction. Ultimately, it will declare that the one true Messiah has come and therefore must be worshipped, and those who refuse must be destroyed. It is standing. We also learned that the famed abomination of desolation is not something for which we are waiting, but it is here now, having been standing where it ought not to be. 
As with the voice of the image, not everyone may see the image. And not everyone who does see the image knows that it is the image of a false messiah, a poser. The image is standing and has been standing in the holy place. However, if we want to see, we must be willing to let the Spirit do all that is necessary to transform in our heart, mind, and soul the earnest but completely wrong notions we have held to about church, about Christianity, about the community of the, quote, people of God, and let the truth we learned in Revelation 11, 1 through 2 about the measurement of the sanctuary sink deep into our being. The fact that there is a measurement and a segregation of those who are now found to be worshiping in the sanctuary from all others, including the priests who are busy serving in the temple, that should have rocked your view of Christianity, at least the version of Christianity that many of us have come to know. But as we are learning, hearing truth and knowing or seeing truth are two different things. A reality which is brought to light by the may and the might. If the truth about the measurement of the sanctuary rocked our world, this next bit about the abomination of desolation should cause to demolish, Lord willing, any fabricated notions we have about the church, about Christianity, and about the community of the people of God. It is positioned. Make no mistake, the abomination of desolation has been positioned in the unseen realm in the holy place of the chosen people of God. It is a spiritual reality that has a very real impact on our physical existence in the community of believers. And that is why the Spirit said in Matthew 24, 15 through 23, in reference to his disclosing this information about the abomination of desolation, he who is now reading is commanded to now understand or to identify this image. One must have eyes to see. Sight is a precondition to our being able to now understand. So let's get to the elephant in the room. How is it possible that the abomination of desolation has been standing, or better yet, positioned amid the chosen people of God? We have addressed this actually now many times, so this is not new. It is likely that many of you already guessed the answer. But as with the truth about the measurement of the sanctuary, the holy place, so too is this truth very uncomfortable, hard to embrace, and hard to know what to do with once we understand it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 12. May no one deceive you by any means. For it, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is caused to be revealed, the son of destruction, who even now chooses to be opposing, and now chooses to be exalting himself above all that is now caused to being called God or object of worship, so that he sits in the sanctuary of God, now displaying himself that he now is God. Do you not now remember that while I am now being with you, I had told you these things? Do you now know what is now restraining him now, so that in his time he will be caused to be revealed? For the mystery of lawlessness is already now choosing to work. Only he who is now restraining will do so until he chooses to be taken out of the way. And when, or 
at the time that the lawless one will cause to be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is now in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deceptions of wickedness for those who are now choosing to be perishing, because they did not choose to receive the love of the truth so as to be caused to be saved. Using the human imager or avatar of the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, literally the son of the beast whose name is destruction, the spirit reveals the workings of the beast. And we know that the son of destruction is just an avatar for the beast because the activities are all communicated in the present tense as happening every moment of now, from the now of times past to the now of, well, the now of our day and age. Thus, the spirit is simply using a reference to the human avatar to communicate truths about the beast. In addition, the spirit is clear that he, the son of destruction, has yet to be physically revealed, for he is being restrained. Remember, the beast is now still imprisoned in the abyss. Most importantly, the spirit communicates that the beast sits in the sanctuary of God, now displaying himself that he now is God. The verb sits is rendered in the aorist active infinitive, indicating that this is what he does. This is where he is positioned. The imagery of one who sits is a picture or a place of authority, much like the way the elders of a city all would sit at the city gates to decide a matter, or how David sat in the city gate where he was honored as king, or how Solomon sat on his throne to decide matters for his people. This idea that this demonic being sits in the sanctuary should just stop us in our tracks. According to the Codex, in the sanctuary, there were no seats for the priest. They always stood when they were doing their duties in the sanctuary. They never sat down. In all the sanctuary, there was to be only one seat, the mercy seat, the lid which sat on the Ark of the Covenant where God would appear in the cloud and from which he would speak to Moses. The Spirit is using the picture of one who sits in the sanctuary to communicate not just the authority which this abomination exercises in the sanctuary from within the chosen people of God, but also to point out that this abomination is even now emulating God, the one who appeared above the mercy seat. Corruption from within. The Codex reveals a long history of a very harrowing reality, and that is that the best work of deception comes from within, not from without. Consider how this works. Before sin was known to mankind, the serpent was present in Eden, the garden of God, to speak lies to Eve and destroy the holiness that both Adam and Eve knew. Remember, they walked with God. Ishmael, the son of the slave woman her, who persecuted the son of promise, was present in Abraham's tent. Esau, who sold his own birthright for a bowl of stew, was present in Isaac's tent. Jacob's tent, we are told, was corrupted with murderers, liars, and betrayers. King Solomon married foreign wives and built temples to their gods next to the temple of Yahweh. 
and he worshipped those gods, including Chemosh, who is also known as the beast. Uzziah, the king of Israel, became filled with pride, and he entered the sanctuary of God to burn incense on the altar of incense, something reserved only for the priests. Israel defiled the sanctuary with all their detestable idols and abominations. The priests profaned the sanctuary and did violence to the law. The people of Judah profaned the sanctuary and married the daughter of a foreign god. Satan was present in the wilderness to tempt Jesus. Satan spoke through Peter to tempt Jesus and place a stumbling block before him. Satan entered Judas, one of Jesus' chosen 12 disciples, to cause him to betray Jesus. And no one else knew it or had any inkling of an idea that Judas was a deceiver and the betrayer of the brethren. From within the midst of the early gathering of believers, Satan filled the heart of Ananias to lie to the spirit. The old sinful nature, the flesh, still occupies our body, the nous, the sanctuary of God, and resides there amidst the sanctuary. The flesh is separate from, though next to, the Holy of Holies, the new creation where the spirit of God resides. The sanctuary can be defiled by the flesh but the Holy of Holies cannot. In that vein, it should not surprise us to find the beast has taken his seat of authority from within the sanctuary amidst the chosen priests of God, and the second beast has positioned the image of the beast where it ought not to be, in and amongst the chosen priests of God, where it is positioned as the true Messiah on the mercy seat, and his gospel as the gospel of Jesus Christ. This image speaks, and the terrible and sad implication is that many of the chosen priests of God hear and follow the voice of this poser, this false Messiah. It is speaking the ultimate deception. The picture of the beast who sits in the sanctuary is an image of greatest abominations and desolation, for it confirms that he is even now displaying himself, that he now is God as he is positioned where he ought not to be. As God would meet with Moses and the high priest from his seat in the sanctuary, the mercy seat, the beast meets with the chosen priest of God on his seat, the seat of perversion, conveying that he is God and speaking to those who have ears to hear his words of division, fire, and destruction. This poser has pulled off one of the greatest deceptions ever, convincing everyone that their view of Jesus is the real Jesus. Just think of how many versions of Jesus there are in our world. It is estimated today that there are more than 45,000 Christian denominations in the world, with more than 200 in the United States alone. Each of these groups believes something different and, in effect, follow a different version of Jesus, their own version which they have created in their own image. If you understand this, if you may have eyes to see, you will know that though there are thousands of faces or versions of Jesus, there's just one image, one icon, one false Messiah. This image is identified by the many as the Messiah because of its unique wounds. However, the chosen of God should identify this image that is positioned where it ought not to be by the words that it speaks, by its perversions of grace. These more than 45,000 different faces of Jesus 
are the work of the one who sits in the sanctuary of God, now displaying himself that he now is God. This is the one who will portray as much of the real Jesus as a person needs to be deceived. This image uses the truth like a surgeon uses a scalpel. He will tell us that Jesus is the son of God, that he died for our sins. He will tell us that Jesus rose from the dead and is seated with the Father in heaven. He will tell us that Jesus loves us and offers us salvation by grace through faith. He will even tell us that Jesus is coming back for us in the rapture. But regardless of the words he uses, he always, 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 always finds a way to add some measure of the work of our hands. Some measure of what we must do for God. Some measure of law by which we can determine if we or others are being good Christians, good witnesses for God. For instance, he always makes sin, at some level, the core issue, an issue that needs to be conquered and defeated. He does not proclaim the truth of our unrestrained freedom. In so doing, this image denies that Jesus came in the flesh, a concept we'll explain in a moment. What this image speaks forth stands in contrast to what the Spirit spoke. For by grace, you are now caused to have been being saved through faith. And that not of yourself, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should choose to boast. Being saved is the process which results from our willingness to let the Spirit teach us why we can believe Yahweh is who he says he is, that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And how we can come to believe that he is who he says he is. Our responsibility in this salvation is to now be believing. Remember, faith is a now thing. The work of saving is his, and it is a work of grace, which is a gift of God and not a result of one iota of effort from ourselves. Yahweh Yasha, Yahweh who saves, now takes us through the process of being saved from all that stands in the way of his being our I am. It is as a result of this work of grace that we take step one and are born again, brought into God's household. Then in his household, we are given the opportunity to choose to become a son of God, which means that we choose to no longer live like a slave to the law by what we must do for God. For we have been given the right or authority to choose to take step two and become a son of God by now believing that he is our I am, our go-to, our source for all things, all the time. Please don't miss this. The false Jesus will tell us whatever we need to hear. He will. He'll give us as much truth as, as we need but he always, always, always perverts the grace of God with the leaven of the law, with the lie that sin is the core issue, with the lie that there is something we need to do other than to now be believing that Jesus is our I am. And he plays the long game. He knows that with just a little leaven, over time, the whole loaf will become permeated with the lie. We must always keep at the forefront of our soul, the formula of our faith, 100% what God does 
as we simply are willing to let him help us believe that he is our I am. The perversion of grace is the telltale sign of the image of the beast that sits in the sanctuary of God. Do you have eyes to see and ears to hear? Jesus came in the flesh. The Spirit tells us that we can have discernment regarding the voices we hear and the truth to which we cling. He says that those spirits who do not confess that Jesus came in the flesh are not from God, but are from Antichrist. Similarly, he says that many deceivers who do not acknowledge that Jesus came in the flesh are of Antichrist. These statements, they used to confuse me so much. Why is it so important for some spirit or for us to confess that Jesus came in the flesh? Let's break this down. The standard of perfection. The standard of the law is perfection, for the law of Yahweh is perfect. Yet we are told that the law made nothing perfect because nothing was made like the law. Nothing else was perfect. The spirit is clear that no man has ever been perfected by the law. This means that by the works of the law, no man will be justified before Yahweh. Hence, our need for his grace. Yet Jesus came to earth as a flesh and blood man, and he fulfilled or satisfied the requirements of the law, just as Jesus said he would do. Jesus was clearly more than a man, God Almighty. This is the reason that on the cross, Jesus cried out to Telestai. Literally, it has been caused to be finished. Being in the perfect passive indicative, his finished work of satisfying the law resonates throughout time. And that is a statement of fact. Jesus, as a man, stood in our place and fulfilled the requirement of perfection. He alone met the standards of righteousness demanded in the law. Hence, his name from the Old Testament, Yahweh Sidkenu, Yahweh our righteousness. And if he fulfilled or satisfied the law, then there is nothing left for us to do but to rest in his finished work, letting his righteousness be our righteousness. This is the essence of grace, what God does for us and what he has offered to us. The perversion of grace. Now, if a spirit or a man denies that Jesus came in the flesh, in essence, he denies this work of grace. He denies that a man fulfilled the requirements of the law. Of course, few people run around saying, Jesus did not come in the flesh. I mean, some have, but preachers and teachers world over make the same confession. Jesus did not come in the flesh when they put a burden on believers to do something, to be pleasing to God or to not do something that would upset God and shame our faith. Every time someone has told us that sin is our problem and we need to stop doing this or that, they are emphatically declaring Jesus did not come in the flesh and they are antichrist. They are proclaiming that there is more work to be done. What Jesus did was not enough. Every time someone promotes what is nothing more than the idolatrous work of our hands based on the good that Christians should do and the bad that they should not do, they are emphatically declaring 
Jesus did not come in the flesh, and they are Antichrist. Jude and Revelation targets those within the visible church with a message which separates those who stand only on the goodness of God from those who are trying very hard to be good for God. Yahweh offers those he has called into his household the choice to live in him or to turn from him and live for him. For there is a fundamental difference between a person who is living for God and the one who is willing to let God live in and through them. This is a difference which plays out in life and death and those who are now choosing to be coming out of the great tribulation and those who will choose to endure wrath. So what do we do? Surely we must need to do something. After all, didn't the spirit say that faith without works is useless and dead? Yes, he did. But Jesus previously brought clarity to this notion when he said that this now is the work of God, that you may now believe on him whom he has sent. Our only work is the work of now believing. In fact, the vehicle through which grace pours over our lives or the channel through which grace flows is our now believing. It is our faith. It is how we come to be possessed or filled by the Spirit of God. Then he does his works in and through our lives. They're not our works, but his. For by grace, you are now caused to have been being saved through faith. And that not of yourself, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should choose to boast. Hebrews 11.6 is clear that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that now chooses to be coming to God must now believe that he, God, now is, and that he now chooses to be a rewarder of those who are now diligently seeking him. As we have learned, faith is always a now thing. But what about sin? What about the bad things we do? Surely God does not want us to live that way. Of course he doesn't. As the Spirit asks, shall we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? But that is where our work of belief comes in. The more we try not to sin, the more we try not to do bad, the more we find ourselves embroiled in it. The more we try to do good, the more we fail. That is because any law that sets forth what we must do or not do excites sin in our lives. But this too is purposeful. It is so that sin might be proven to be utterly sinful. In other words, the law and sin are tools which are intended to show us how desperate we are for grace, how needy we are for God's righteousness and his goodness in our lives. It is through the law that we have the knowledge of sin. It is the law that provokes sin. The law came so that sin or transgression would increase. But apart from the law, sin is dead. Without the law, if people were blind to the commandment, there would be no account for sin. This is why the perversions of grace spoken by the image always introduces some element of law. The law, your law, my law, or someone else's law, which puts a burden on us in terms of what we must do 
what we should do and what we can do to be good Christians. Keep in mind, when it comes to law, it does not have to be the Mosaic law that trips us up and binds us in sin. For Adam and Eve stumbled over the very first law ever made when they were commanded to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So again, it could be the Mosaic law or the law of righteousness that our church or anyone else demands of us, even the law which we demand of ourselves in our attempt to please God and to be good witnesses to the world, to be good Christians. It's all a perversion of grace. In contrary, the way of the Spirit operates without law. The Spirit says that if we now walk in the Spirit, we may not carry out the deeds of the flesh, which is all manner of terrible sin. The reason is that if we are now being led by the Spirit, we are now under no law. Thus, in our unrestrained freedom without law, we will be able to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, which now is love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. Against such things, there now is no law. The idea is that if we are actually now believing that Jesus is our I am, then what need is there in our life for things of darkness, for things of the flesh, for the sin in which we indulge because we look for some satisfaction or provision that we do not believe we are receiving or will receive from Yahweh? It is in this light walking in the Spirit of God, now believing that Jesus is enough for our now, that the Spirit tells us to choose to cast off the works of darkness, to choose to lay aside our old manner of life, which is now caused to be corrupting, and to choose to now be laying aside sin, which so easily besets us. Helpless to cause our own transformation, however, this means that we must choose to be willing to let Yahweh Yasha Yahweh who frees, do what is necessary in our lives such that the Spirit of God may come to extend His reach in our bodies to every nook and cranny until we choose in freedom and not compulsion to cast off, lay aside, and be laying aside everything that is worthless. The Spirit also tells us to choose to put on the armor of light. He commands us to choose to put on Jesus Christ and to choose to now make no provision for our flesh with regard to its lusts, to put on the new man, which has been caused to being created in righteousness and holiness of truth, like God, to choose to put on the armor of God, having chosen the breastplate of righteousness, to choose to put on and be caused to put on mercy, kindness, humbleness, meekness, and long-suffering now choosing to be bearing with one another, and now choosing to be forgiving one another. And above all these things, agape love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Both the act of casting off and putting on come by way of faith. It's an exchange that is all dependent upon the personhood of Jesus Christ, upon our believing, which is our work, that he is enough, that he came in the flesh, Therefore, sin is no longer an issue that separates us from God, but is just a tool that Jesus uses to teach us why we need him, 
such that it is safe to let go of all that we have clung to in our flesh and to put on or to now be believing in all that he is and all that he will provide and produce in our lives if we let him. Our lives are to be all about grace, about what Jesus does in our lives through faith, through our now believing. Any other demand is a declaration that Jesus did not come in the flesh. The perversion of grace through any law which demands what we must do or not do to be pleasing to God or to be good Christians is the telltale sign of the image of the beast that sits in the sanctuary of God. Working from his seat within the sanctuary, the beast who sits within the midst of the people of God has been very busy throughout the centuries, and his image has been speaking. For instance, he has not wanted us to understand what the Spirit spoke, much less how he spoke it to the prophets who penned the words of the Bible. Therefore, to implement perversions to grace, the beast from a seat of authority within the center of Christianity is the one who ensured the translators of the Bible made uniform and fundamental changes to the text. For instance, in almost all translations, they changed the name Yahweh, the name, to the title Lord, dropping the personal connection to our God. Yes, he is the Lord, the Adonai, but his name is Yahweh the name that is rooted in the Hebrew Hayah, the name which assures us that he now is and that he now is a rewarder for those who are now seeking him. This is the name that assures us that he is and always will be our I am, the existent one who is everything we need all the time. One simply cannot understand this truth, the power of his name, through the title Lord. They changed Zion, the spiritual city of God, to Jerusalem, so we would always be confused as to what community God was addressing, those who dwell in the physical city or those who dwell in the spiritual city. They changed the word sanctuary as a reference to the called and chosen people of God to temple, so most would miss the unfathomable impact of the measurement of the sanctuary and the location in which the beast has established his seat of authority. The beast made sure that the translators ignored much of the code, such that they rendered words in the present tense as past tense words. So we would not understand what is happening in our now. And they tended to avoid the passive and the middle voice altogether, thereby confusing who is responsible for an action, while at the same time, obscuring intent. This one who sits in the sanctuary is behind all the fictions we have addressed, and there is so much more as he perverts and perverts and perverts. This explains why there are over 45,000 different versions of Christianity, each with their own version of Christ or their own version of how Christ is expressed in their faith, with all, if not mostly all, retaining an obsession with sin their own perversion of grace. In the Codex, we are told that there is one God, one Spirit, one Christ, and they are one. They do not change ever. We are also told that no prophecy of Scripture is of one's interpretation. 
for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, now caused to be moving by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Yet somehow, in Christendom, we have more than 45,000 private interpretations of Scripture. This is largely because the one who sits in this sanctuary, exercising his authority, claiming to be God, the one bearing the wounds, the one whose image has been speaking, has moved aggressively to ensure that there are few who let the translated scriptures reflect how the Spirit actually spoke to the men who were moved by God to write what the Spirit said. Let's stop here, and we'll pick up on our next podcast with more on this image, which the second beast, the false prophet, gives breath as we confront the question, do we have eyes to see, and are we willing to flee? I'm glad you tuned in and have been ready to listen. To get a free download of the full written transcript with all the scripture references footnoted, please go to threshermediagroup.com. That is T-H-R-E-S-H-E-R mediagroup.com. This is Steve with Thresher Media Group. When you're ready to listen, tune in.